When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lutheran kind of denomination. Okay. Is it progressive at all? Do you know? Uh, well, what isn't? <laughs> That's the problem. I know. <laughs> yeah. I don't, it was I hard don't, to. Uh, the last time I took communion was in, with the Covenant Church was in, uh, well, no, I guess, yeah. Um, it, it was before, it was like the 90s. So it was before wokeness really uh, caught on. It was still, uh, PC was still kind of not, uh, it was something that looked down on uh, mm-hmm. in the uh, conservative Christian communities. Um, not so much anymore, unfortunately. Okay, cool. We're going to unpack that for sure. Okay. Um, we can start recording anytime or if you're ready to go. I'm always we're talk- recording. So. I, know, I know you're a busy yeah. guy. Yeah, no. um, we're Thanks going to. Re- yeah, no problem. I'm happy to have you since you were one of the first people that gave me an opportunity. It would be really fun. And you typically aren't the one being interviewed. So I thought this might be really neat to kind of pick your brain about your background. Because I realized when I was talking with you that first time, I was like, I don't know anything about him. He's always the one asking questions, which is certainly a role for that but we would like to know a little bit about you so let's solve all the world's problems here that's what we try to do over here over where over here on my little podcast called trad queen story hour oh trad queen my husband named yes so where is the plaid where's the what um trad plaid don't they have some sort of plaid things I don't know. Trad girls? (laughs) They should. No, no. They're just traditional, like housewives, which is basically what I am now, aside from my little YouTube hobby, where I Mm. talk to people about ideas, which is basically my favorite thing on earth. So we're technically recording, but we can clip whatever you want or don't want. We don't say any bad or mean words. We don't say the T word. We don't call people any kinds of slurs. Obviously, you know the rules of YouTube. You seem super successful. Testosterone. Yeah, oh, the T okay. people. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. <laughs> turf, turf is also a T word. Technically correct. Yes. Yeah. So is like tortoise. So <laughs> we don't say any T words at all oh, on this podcast. <laughs> Quite the challenge. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to be really thoughtful about our words for sure. <sighs> so my husband is technically my producer. He'll be listening in. He may be chatting at us over the hey, course bro. of the If I uh, flirt, show. it's just my style of conversation. It's nothing uh, <laughs> offensive intended. I'll all good, all good. You talk to so many different people. You have to find ways to coax things out of them. I'm sorry to hear that about Polly. I hope she's okay. She's been going through some exciting times. Oh yeah, she's a lightning rod. Yeah, um, yeah, so she she'll is. recover. It was just something somebody broke into her car and took all her Uh-oh. stuff. So we was she in London them. or where? I don't know. Uh, she's in one of those British communities out there on that Ooh. British Isle of Britannia. Oh, yeah, Maybe. <laughs> I, know. I don't know if it's last London thing I saw her, she was getting the Andy No treatment with I think ketchup or something. Yeah, which yeah. is 
I don't think those people realize how much of a martyr and how much of a hero that makes her look like. Yeah, yeah. They don't well, seem to understand marketing at all, right? Well, see, that's the thing. If you look at what's happening over and over and over, and you've been studying the media cycle uh, much more thoroughly and deeply than I, um, uh, with all of your pre all of your work that you've done in the media sphere, but you see that the narrative is always controlled. That they'll prop oh, up, yeah. uh, they'll, they'll forget about, they'll memory hole a martyr, and then they'll, you know, like what happened in. What was it? Uh, Tennessee, uh, Nashville. As, yeah. uh, Nashville. As soon as that happened, everything—the whole narrative apparatus—and everybody got on board with uh, covering that up. So sprang into motion. Yes, that was interesting to watch, and I hope that a lot of people will were red pilled off that. But who knows? I know that some people are really deeply entrenched, and there's just no hope for them. But hmm. to anybody who was even slightly paying attention, they were probably like, like, "Oh, that was weird. Why aren't they paying attention to the people who were actually, you know, murdered?" Who knows? Uh, yeah. It's probably yeah. just a, a quirk. I don't know if you follow David Marcus, but he recently said, "No one in the mainstream media is lying to you." And I was like, "What? What? <laughs> you know, run that by me again." Wait, who's this <laughs> That's guy? Crazy. Is he in the mainstream? He's a media? commentator. Well, no, not really. He goes on Fox sometimes. He's technically a conservative. I was just like, what? Huh. How could you? Are you just saying that for engagement? Are you engagement farming? Because that's kind of what that feels like. That's fascinating. Yeah, I was like, wow, okay, maybe, maybe not. All right, let us get into it. We'll be a little bit more structured, but we're just going to meander. There are no rules, except we don't say mean things, and we try to be oh, nice, okay. and I try to ask mean reasonable things. questions. No mean things. Okay. We don't say, like, the N-word or anything. So Okay, yeah, yeah, nice. I, the language yeah, I know, but sometimes I get snarky. Is snarky mean? No, you can be snarky. Yeah, okay, because no, that's kind of mean, away. technically speaking. It's all good. You can okay. take it away. I'll try all to right. be chill then. No worries. Good evening, everyone. I'm so excited to join you once again with a calm voice of reason, Benjamin Boyce. You've probably seen some of his interviews uh, during your journeys across YouTube. It seems like he's interviewed pretty much everyone under the sun, including me early on, which was the great chat. I believe he titled that conversation Lifting the Lid because he's very talented with these names. He also has a podcast called Conversations because he has quite the gift of naming. So go over and check out his interviews and his podcasts. Benjamin, how are you doing and what I'm, have you been up to? I'm great, Lit. How are you doing? I'm I am doing well. Doing the content creation thing, which is what we're doing now. So that's awesome. The... Yeah, I reached out to Benjamin and I was like, hey, would you like to join me one of these days? And he's like, well, I just had a spot open up this afternoon. And I was like, great, let's do it today. We'll do two today. It'll be awesome. So Benjamin, you are in your very secluded looking area. From my understanding, you are in the western part of the United States. Is that correct? The Pacific Northwest, actually. I'm uh, oh. outside of uh, Olympia, Washington in the uh, cool. great rainforest of Thurston County. I think it's one of the wettest places in America, the continental U.S., other than like some county in Mississippi because they have hurricanes there. So it's just always, right. <laughs> always wet and rainy here. So how is the weather treating you over there? It's okay. I mean, it's just, you know, keep on going. Yeah. I, I get mossy and then I just have yeah. to scrub myself a little extra. I have, I finally got one of those back scratchers that's ergonomic <laughs> so I can reach all of the little like fungus and Nooks whatever. And yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that doesn't surprise me at all coming from someone who lives over in that part of the country. How are the politics over there right now? 
Oh, uh, Washington state politics is pretty darn left. Um, and I haven't really been keeping up with it because it's just so far woke that there's really no, it's just, it's one-sided, uh, especially because it's controlled. It's basically can basically controlled by Seattle and the Puget Sound, which is very uh, left. And then there's, you know, a great swath of red country on the eastern side of the Cascades, but they don't have the balance of powers, uh, not at all uh, commiserate to any sort of like competitive co-processing that Democrats do control everything and they do get whatever they want. Um, so, and it's just the same thing. They, they, um, a couple years ago, they started up an equity, uh, an office of equity. And I went through and I watched the formation of that office of equity. It was just insane stuff. These people in this interminable meeting coming up with all these reasons why they need to control every single aspect of the government and make sure that they have the purse strings uh, at their command. And they were saying things about how uh, Washington needs to become more like South Africa um, because then people can just walk into a meeting and we don't have like a Western, uh, white Western way of like being on time and, and being agenda driven. You know, we need to let go of these different things. It was just off the wall, kind of like complete flouting of any sort of responsibility for public funds, you know. South Africa is an yeah. interesting role model to take. It's actually, I see that a lot. A lot of people praise South Africa in the equity uh, business. It's kind of like, really? okay, is this, is this where we want to go? Because, you well, know, let's unpack that. There's a lot there. Yeah. Truth and reconciliation, <laughs> um, brownouts Farmers. constantly, um, little secluded areas where I think the biggest, like the, 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 the and this is just off the top of my head, but one of the biggest growing industries in South Africa is private security. <gasps> Because that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> because reasons, yeah. yeah. Well, as I recall, uh, there is a little town in South Africa that I think is probably one of the last places in the world that is whites only, and it's called Oriana. So I'm curious now huh. if their goal is to divide people along those lines so much that they actually get what I suspect is their end goal, which is actually fully segregated society away from people of other races. Am yeah. I crazy? Do I have that backwards? I don't know. I mean, apartheid, it went. There's no reason for it not to come back. I mean, uh, it's really interesting thinking of the race issue. And that's where I started with the race issue. I've moved on moved on to the gender issue because the race issue, is, um, it just feels so dead-ended to me. It's like yeah. there's so many people with so much invested in keeping that aggression uh, going. And so much so that, you know, it just constantly evokes itself it constantly recreates the racist discourse constantly recreates itself the thing about gender is that it is it constantly recreates itself by creating more human beings so it feels a little bit more generative than you know race war kind of stuff even though the yeah. gender issue right now is pretty fraught yeah it is fraught but it also is on a very basic level, much more interesting than the race thing. I feel like we've had the race conversation a lot of times in the past. Um, you got your start on the evergreen beat, right? Yeah. With yeah. all the chaos there at the school. Do you want to remind everybody what happened there? I think everybody's forgotten. 
I have oh. not forgotten. Oh, you have very not forgotten? Um, no, well, no. I do have a very, very <laughs> thorough documentary on my YouTube channel um, uh, called The Evergreen, Complete Evergreen Story. Um, but in very brief, what happened was that Evergreen State College is a hyper-progressive college. It, it was started as a very experimental college. Had a lot of promise, a lot of uh, really good things going for it, but kind of got stuck in a perpetual cycle of hiring more and more leftist professors. And, and because it was kind of secluded and because it started out kind of experimental it was ahead of the curve of most of academia and academia now we can see over throughout america for the last five six seven probably even 10 years i guess the the first breakout was in 2015 with uh nicholas christakis in yale with the whole you're this is not an intellectual space we're creating a home here but at evergreen it was like this pressure cooker for what would be called wokeness at that time in 2017 it was called sjw's and youtube was filled with these sjw compilations and you know uh, milo yiannopoulos and ben shapiro would be getting canceled and stuff so we saw that in utero um but now it's kind of, it's just a standard thing. I think kids go to college now expressively to get their protest points in. And the administration's cow to the protesters because it's just a rite of passage now. It's just something you have to go through. But at that time in, in 2017, there was some uh, s false allegations of racism that spiraled out of control due to social media mismanage, uh, mismanagement of the administration of the issue and then a bunch of just uh, cooped up students that were kind of failing and needed to express a bunch of energy and express a lot of frustration and then you know demand a bunch of grades um, by basically taking over the campus uh, taking people hostage um, stopping cars uh, facilitating who can come and who can go and, and they live streamed it all on the internet and probably 20 40 hours of footage of them just at acting like complete asshats you know wandering the campus with baseball bats beating up people who are writing chalk on on the, uh, writing in chalk on the sidewalks we want class let's talk to each other and they're like freaking fascists you know and they beat people up yeah um so that happened brett weinstein was in, embroiled in that brett weinstein had connections through his brother eric to um joe rogan dave rubin so the publicity just it ramped up right away. Twitter, YouTube, it flooded um, uh, with uh, reactions to all this footage, which is just total crazy footage. And nobody had actually seen the whole story because the footage was completely from the phones of the students. But I had been mm -hmm. working in the media department and I had seen all these workshops and lectures and seminars that were teaching the students to do exactly what they did. And so what I ended up doing was going through and getting all of those videos and all of the internal documents and then uploading as much as I could online to show that it wasn't just the students acting crazy. It was the entire academic inf infrastructure, the faculty and the administration that was wanting and cooking this revolution and not really understanding what they were dealing with. That is such an interesting revelation. So you are just the man in the right place at the right time to really expose this full story. Yeah. And I think that that is fantastic. I'm very glad that you were there. Do you think that this has been like, so we're kind of jumping into this a little bit quickly because usually I wait a little longer to ask people about their conspiratorial ideas. But Ooh. do you think this was a conspiracy? Do you think this has been in the works from some kind of overarching bad person or just a natural outcome of liberalizing education, higher education. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. So once you start asking those questions, 
there's there's places to go down. So is there a centralized plan or is this kind of an emergent property of some sort of elite theory or of uh, decay of uh, these institutions? Or is it something inherent in what we call liberalism that leads to progressivism that then leads to hyper progressivism or progressivism um, whose sole focus is on total emancipation and then total uh, forced equalization of everyone and total forced process. And as I have gone on my journey over the last, I guess uh, we're coming on the six year anniversary here in May of that and kind of my political awakening, which was a dark awakening. And, uh, I'm, I'm really personally, I, I, at this point in time, I very favor the elite theory. You just talked to uh, Aaron uh, McIntyre, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, which would be uh, kind of a Machiavellian theory of power and how power always conserves itself and absolute power mm-hmm. always conserves itself. And that's the one theory that makes sense of how Nancy Pelosi acts and how George Bridges acts, how the, how the protesters act across the nation whenever certain events happen and how the entire media apparatus reacts consistently to favor one side, which is always what we call left. And left means total utter emancipation of, of the will of the human being and then total equal, which, which is, it just doesn't make sense because you can't be completely um, emancipated and completely equal at the same time. So what happens is the, the power of the state comes in and gives you all of this pseudo freedom, libertinism, and then, and then mm. suppresses all of your uh, aspirant uh, desires your competence by submitting it all to libidinal urges. And that's why you consistently see um, sexuality centered on this and degenerate sexuality, because that's, that's mm-hmm. the way to short circuit people's ambition so that they get immediate pleasure. Anything that leads to immediate pleasure dis- disconnects their, uh, you know, their long-term goals, their self-reliance, and then their ability to stand up against the state in unison and create a state that's more uh, uh, in cohesion with the goodness that the people want or is what good for the people. That's fascinating because I had somebody say to me the other day because I was engaged in that discourse about Budweiser being so, you know, ridiculously off the wall with their most recent ad campaign. And somebody said alcohol really is like an opiate of the masses. If we could get people to stop drinking, it would make people less malleable to this authoritarian government idea. And I was like, that's interesting. Now, we know that the history of alcohol is such that the working class has always used it to kind of make life a little bit easier. And for that reason alone, I think that you probably shouldn't try to take it away from everybody. And we know that they tried to do that during Prohibition and that did not end well. So that was just an interesting kind of tie in there that I'm seeing. I think that you're correct about using immediate gratification and this hedonism to distract people from possibly seeing serious problems in the way the state is run. Now, you mentioned your political backstory. So I wanted to ask, you're from a progressive part of the country. Is that where you're from originally? And what else transpired to turn you into kind of the thinker that you are today? Um, What transpired? Well, I was walking along the road on my donkey. Uh, No, and uh, (laughs) 
My road to, to Red Pill Damascus. Um, so I guess it's interesting because, you no, know, I grew up in California, but Northern California outside of Sacramento, which in the 90s, I was born in 76, so 80s and 90s. And that was still pretty conservative. It was outside of you know San Francisco, L.A. Um, and California is still pretty blue outside of very powerful centers, um, just like in America. Mm-hmm. Like you have this constant. Oh, I'm sorry. Blue, red, the right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> I so know what co- you mean. It's even still, like, I should know that. But, you know, red, Democrat, but then red, not Democrat. Okay, whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then lightsabers, like, wait, which one is the red Who and the knows? blue one? Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Red's not good, but, you know. <laughs> but I would, I, I had to, so I started, uh, this is probably part of my awakening. I started, uh, my first job was a paper route when I was 11. So, I, you know, I, I learned, you know, money management, getting up at the crack of dawn, like delivering yeah. papers and stuff like that. And then I did that throughout my uh, formative years into my teens. And at some point, I think in uh, my freshman year of high school, I stumbled upon this um this radio guy who who had a he had a radio show in Sacramento and one other place and his name was Rush Limbaugh and he had these oh. three hour uh, spiels that he'd go and he'd do all these different um, segments he'd talk about feminazis he'd talk about like animal rights uh, lovers <laughs> and he would just rail against all these people and it was really uh, fun and engaging and I would just like listen to it and that was kind of I there was something about the guys. Um, charisma and humor that I really, really liked. And then, uh, and then I kind of stopped listening to him and I went away to call Bible college and I came back and he was a big deal. Now he, he got syndicated and, you know, he had a brief TV show and stuff. And then he became the icon that we knew later on as Rush Limbaugh and kind of led that kind of, uh, neocon conservative push against the liberal media, the mainstream media and stuff like that. So that was kind of like, I, I was, I've sided with him and then I'm also a Christian or I was a Christian. I grew up Christian. So a lot of the core ideas um, and ideals of Christianity still stick with me. Like I try not to talk about abortion, but like, I just have a very, I cannot stray away from this is a life and death issue. And this is something we really need to take seriously because if we start to play around with the language of what a child is, what a fetus is, what's us to stop, what's um, to stop us from playing around with the meaning of what a woman is and what a man Mm. is like, is there, once we start to destable ourselves from reality and from some idea of the sacred, then the whole the whole structure of language uh, falls apart. So I, I am very, I don't even know if I want to say conservative now because I'm try, still trying to figure out the proper words for that, but I do want to conserve or at least adulate the transcendent and the sacred and stuff like that. So while I did have, I really disliked George W. Bush and his response to 9-11 and rushing into the Iraq war just totally ticked me off. I thought that was a terrible, terrible idea. And I protested against that. And, and then I was totally trying to get George Bush out of office, you know, vote for Kerry, you know, back in that time. And when Kerry just kind of threw the election, I'm like, this is all, it's all bull crap. Fake. Yeah. This is all fake. This is all fake. (laughs) So I I had so much of my heart wrapped up into it that I'm I'm not going to invest my heart into this stuff anymore. This is just a, it's Mm. just a show. Um, But, you know, I I was in Portland, Oregon for uh, my twenties and in my thirties and being surrounded by a lot of progressives um, and, you know, uh, kind of Obama. I, there was just this, I would, I would see them 
I would see progressives and liberals in Portland and in Washington just assume things about the world that they weren't aware of their own superiority over everybody else. And that always just kind of ticked me off because they didn't, they didn't kind of understand how privileged they were ironically enough um, and how universalist their ideas were, how they thought that their way of life could just be projected onto the rest of the world and that they're at the end of history. Ergo, they're on the right side of history. Ergo, they get to judge what's right and wrong and just kind of amalgamate and homogenize cultures um and uh, or and submit them to this progressive idea and i always kind of resisted that um just aesthetically um because i i could see where it was headed and then at evergreen when i got on campus at evergreen and you see this unfettered progressivism you see just i worked a lot in preschool while i was writing novels in my 20s and working in preschool and what I saw with this progressive Kool-Aid given to the students at Evergreen was that these were, I, I had spent, you know, 10, 15 years trying to turn kids into adults. And then I watched this progressive stuff turn adults into kids. They would go right immediately into tantrum mode, immediately into just very short-sighted thinking, very big emotions, very like very, it's very urgent and the entire world's on fire if they don't get their little sippy cup right now of justice, right? And I'm like, what is going on here? This is so immature. This is so immature. And then the way that the adults were unable to respond to it is anything other than devouring mothers is anything other than coddling mothers. There was a lot, just mm -hmm. a feminization of the academic, um, institution and that turned everybody into children. So you had this, this, uh, this, you know, Robin D'Angelo suckling this, uh, this, uh, Negro baby, right? There's just this perverse kind of childization, infantilization of the black folk. And I could show you the footage of that. I don't mean to be offensive at all. This is the way that they would talk and the attitude that they, they would have. Um, right. So I just, I was always kind of subtly reactive, but then my reaction got stronger and stronger and stronger as I saw them violating the principles of maturity and integrity and, and creating value other than demanding and leeching value out of everything. It's so interesting that you made the connection to the feminine so early on, because this is something that I now see everywhere. Um, I've been against the 19th Amendment for quite a while now, and it's not necessarily because this gives women the right to vote. The problem that I see is that it gives people who have no investment in the future of the country, not just a right, but like a responsibility and a moral push to vote for things that they do not understand and with no eye to the future at all. So it, there's kind of been this, this interest of mine to see like how the country would have voted if only women had voted maybe in 2016, 2018, and if only men had voted. And the, the difference is stark. Like the fact that we have two political parties in this country, and there are in fact two genders, I'm going to say it, um, is really fascinating to me because I don't know if you're familiar with Verdant Labs, they did a study of different professions and they broke them down along the lines of political party. And if you go to, for example, surgeons, you can see that a vast majority of surgeons are not only Republicans, but also males. And it's so interesting because to me, it's clear to see how conservatism and the necessarily theoretically the party of the GOP would be more aligned with masculine principles. And it's, it's very, very clear 
that we need both sides like we need both wings this is something that my old boss tim used to talk about a lot he's like you need two strong wings to fly appropriately and i think that's entirely correct it's kind of similar to how you have the male and female in a marriage and you have both you know a female to come along and support the shortcomings of the male and the, the same vice versa for a male to come in and say we're going to use more logic whereas the female is more compassionate and more relationship oriented when you get any one situation where you only have one voice of one gender for lack of a better descriptor kind of driving the conversation you run into problems and it feels like this feminization is growing and expanding why do you think that is at this point in history in our culture um that is a huge question um <laughs> off the top of my head i would say luxury luxury you know mm. there's that meme of um soft Soft men, hard times, you know, uh, yeah, soft yeah. men create bad times, bad times create hard men, hard men create good times, good times create mm -hmm. soft men. Um, and, and so softness would be kind of, uh, you know, metaphorically or symbolically related to more effeminate-ness. Um, hmm. But also, I do see... In the gender debate, it's really fascinating. Um, the, the gender stuff is just endlessly fascinating to me because you have, uh, for instance, you have a lot of like rad femmes or like really staunch second wave, uh, second 2.5 wave feminists who are very, they were totally for sex as a social, con gender as a social construct. You know, we're going to deconstruct right. all of the stereotypes um, so that anybody can be anything and nobody has to be anything. And, you know, we're going to liberate people from the expectations of the roles of what a man is and what a woman is, because a man and a woman are just, you know, these constructs, th these sex archetypes. And if you look at their thought, um, they, they kind of tend to think that gender stops at the neck, you know, like there's no difference between the values that men and women have. Like they're, it's the very big blank slatist type of ideology that's embedded yes. in that. And I understand why, which would go back to liberalism and the origins of feminism. And I have to recommend Erica Bakuloki's book um, on the rights of women. She did a really big book about Mary Wollstonecraft and the origins of feminism. And she walks through the historical uh, mutations and permutations of feminism based as a rights-based or liberal project. Um, but you just reduce the woman into this agent, uh, this economic agent, this rational agent that has no particular needs that she wants. And any sort right. of difference, and you see this in the race um, discussion, any difference is because of sexism. Any disparity of course, is because right. of oppression. Um, because if everybody's equal, then there should be equal outcomes. And if there's not equal outcomes, we need to engineer that because something's wrong with society. Um, I, I'm getting off point but but okay so so you have very in the gender debate with the trans and the turf uh, wars um you have these radical feminists coming up to uh, they're just bumping heads against the fact that man is physically superior to women so we're not equal men have different right. values they compete right. differently um, they think and, very differently. And they think differently. And then even they want to cling to, the Red Femmes want to cling to this idea that men and women are just the same except for the social constructs. But when they get together and act together, they're very feminine in their behavior. Mm. There's a lot of feminine, 
female typical aggression, like reputation destruction, gossip, Gossiping. very verbal. Yeah. Um, and, and so you see that and then you see this inability of that ideology to recognize that this is how women behave. And then if they can't recognize it, they can't regulate it. And so it mm-hmm. kind of goes off the rails over and over and over again. And they do a lot of infighting and they do a lot of purity checking and purity spiraling, which is very yes. leftist in their behavior. So leftism is not just the seeking of, I guess it's fairness, care and fairness, right? Mm -hmm, Women value fairness and they value care. And putting that in contention with some sort of male virtue, I think that's why I call myself gender positive. I'm not gender critical. I think that if we can lay out male typical and female typical values and virtues, we can orchestrate them more consciously to harmoniously participate in the building and sustaining of culture and civilization. And so we, we really need more than just a gam- small gamete, big gamete understanding of the sexes. Yeah, I think you're entirely correct. My argument has always been that there is no war between the sexes. There categorically is not. We desperately need one another. We are not independently complete human beings. We are what we are in assignment with our gender slash sex, I think from a very female position, completely independent of the world around me. And that means that I lack the male side of things. This is why marriage is such a powerful tool. And it makes perfect sense to me why the left and why these malign forces are seeking to undermine institutions like marriage and like the nuclear family, because in the nuclear family, you have such positive views of masculinity and femininity modeled right in front of the newer generation. And it becomes very, very difficult then to say masculinity is toxic. No, it's not. I saw my own father behave in wonderful ways toward my mother. I saw him do everything necessary necessary to keep, in my instance, a family of six children afloat on a single income as my mother fulfilled her side of the bargain by shopping extremely frugally and making sure that we bought only exactly what we needed to and we reused things and made sure that we bought you know, old clothing, but these were both perfectly in balance in my understanding of the world growing up. And that's why when I look at the world and when I look at higher education trying to tell people that you don't need men or that men don't need women. I'm like, that's a lie. I know it's a lie. I've seen it firsthand. Like anecdotally is incredibly significant when it comes to deciding what the truth is, at least in this regard. So all that ridiculous tangent on my part to say, I think you're entirely correct. I am arguing that there is no battle between the sexes because Mm. we so deeply need one another in contrary to what the leftists say. Yeah. Well, and if, well, you know, uh, there's, there's a speculative reason why the left would want to uh, attack the nuclear family, because if you can attack the nuclear family, you basically are attacking, attacking again, individual sovereignty. If you can insert yourself into uh, the family, if the state can insert itself into the family, then it can control the family through bureaucratic means. It can regulate, it can tax the man and then give it to the woman uh, by Mm. kickbacks. And there was this tweet that Biden put out, I think it was in November or December of 2021, where he, he was talking about um, how unfortunate it was that there were so many women who were taking care of you know the vulnerable family members and we need to get them back into the workforce because their true value as human beings as liberal agents as as economic units and so what we're going to do is subsidize a bunch of these you know third probably will import a bunch of immigrants and we'll pay them minimum wage to take care of your family and then you go out and you work and you love the state you completely 
dissolve the bonds of care between the mother and the child and the father and the mother by, inser- by inserting the state into it. But also, I think, I think in the DNA of the left, in the DNA of the left is a, is a either deep distrust or open hatred of hierarchy and authority and yes. monarchy. And this is where the left comes from. It comes from a rebellion against monarchy, which also comes from a rebellion against the Catholic Church, if you go, mm. if you trace this all the way back to the Reformation. And the way that a family operates is through a monarchy. There's a, there's a father who, who's the head and the right. mother who, who kind of, uh, they orchestrate an authority together. They have a pair right. authority that it's sovereign. It's sovereign. Mm-hmm. Why do I have to do this? Because I said, period. That's, yeah. that's purely the the day, authoritative. Yes. So the left, of course, is uh, is inherently allergic to that authority, to, to that form of authority. And so it makes sense that those two things would dovetail, uh, inserting the state, the bureaucratic state, and then dissolving those familial bonds, dissolving the, the divine bonds of mother, child, and father, mother, and child. That is a very interesting take, and I really like that. So you meant you meant okay. So we're, I want to go back a little bit because you mentioned the Reformation, and I want to make sure I have the connection correct. So you're saying that leftism tends to be in favor of the Reformation because it went counter to the Catholic Church or a, like the kind of idea behind the Reformation. Um, well, this Do I is have that right. This is heavily. This is this idea is heavily influenced by Curtis Yarvin, aka. Mencius Mulbug, who mm-hmm. in his open letter to open-minded progressives, which is a tongue-in-cheek title if ever I heard <laughs> one. Um, I'm kidding, progressives. I know you're tuning in. I'm kidding. I love you guys. You're great. Um, <laughs> so great. He, he lays out that and then how Dawkins got pwned. He lays out how progressivism, a.k.a. wokeness, is, he does this brilliant... Um, um, like lineage, he traces the lineage of wokeness and progressivism to Christianity, to universalist, uh, universe, uh, Unitarian universalism, yeah, and yeah. Calvinism, and then you can really do see that the destabilization of authority in the West, and then the releasing of the tremendous amount of energy and a tremendous amount of labor force and a tremendous amount of technological progress, it kind of goes back to the Reformation. It kind of goes back to the printing press. It kind of goes back from resting the divine, um, uh, uh, taking the authority away from the Pope and away from the priests and giving it to the individual. And you have a puritanical um, works save us, not faith, or I, I, I get I get mixed up with that. But you get this Calvinist kind of insistence on uh, on hard work, on 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 destroying any type of idol, on being mm. very pious, and that that strain has it, it's the foundation of America for sure. It's totally it's in our it's in our veins. We are Protestant to our core and we're always yes. wrestling with this. So we are leftists. We are actually, even if we're conservative, I think conservatives are always justifying ourselves in relationship to the left, the left, the left, the, the myth of progress, the myth of, of, of utopia, the myth of even transhumanism, that a man's will is central to everything else. Everything radiates from consent, from choice that all goes back to the reformation that all goes back mm. to, uh, to the the other event that happened after the Reformation that's slipping my mind, that we usually step the the, uh, the Enlightenment 
right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, people usually peg it on the Enlightenment when we try to talk about liberalism, but I think it goes back to the Reformation. And I think it goes back all the way to the, uh, the, the splitting off of the East and the Western Church. I think we are, we are just riding a wave of continual um, dialogue um, of, of resistance against authority in the West. So if you had to pin it to that one idea, it would be the concept of resisting some kind of higher human power. Do you think that's a good analysis of that? D disobedience, rebellion. Yeah. Right. Some Which kind is of, my uh, dad speaking. He's really against rebellion, but it's, it's <laughs> true. true. Sure. We're, we're rebellious. Yeah, it's true. And that really, I think you're probably onto something with that, or I should say perhaps Yarvin is onto something with that. And I need to look more into him because I keep hearing about him. So his ideas are clearly very prevalent, but I'm not familiar with him. I can give you such. a couple links. Um, sure, yeah, that'd audiobooks, be great. Yeah. Uh, this guy, Skeptical Waves on YouTube, uh, just processed all of uh, unqualified reservations through uh, you know Amazon uh, voice technology. So you can get oh, the, cool. you can just listen to the open-minded letter and how Dawkins got pwned. It's he's such an entertaining writer too. He's just so funny that I don't I don't know if his ideas are correct or not. They're very infectious though. He's very virulent. Hmm. He knows how to put things together in a way that just kind of <laughs> wiggle into your brain. That's great. So he has a grasp of the meme, really, for better or for worse, even without images. And that's a hmm. kind of tapping into that cultural awareness. So that's awesome. I'll definitely be checking him out for sure. It sounds like he's on to something there because everything you mentioned, I think, is entirely in line with our understanding of human nature. Well, when you mention us being entirely Protestant, this is part of the reason that the Irish were initially prosecuted, persecuted, not prosecuted. Well, in some the United of them were prosecuted. Yeah, well, some of them, well, for <laughs> reasons. I mean, there are actually reasons to prosecute Irish people at some points, but yeah, yeah. But they didn't want the, the uh, Americans who had settled here in the U.S. did not want to be outbred by the wild and crazy Catholics who had these huge families. So they made it hard for them to find jobs, which meant a lot of them turned to alcohol and all this other stuff so yeah totally definitely i think something there entirely so really can recommend everybody check out curtis yarvin um, as we go forward for sure i love these overarching ideas now you mentioned that your family is deeply religious do you think that an actual revival of true religion would help some of our problems we see today that's a really 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 good question um and I do not think that a turn to religion is it, if, if it comes from the inside out, that's one thing, but if it comes from the outside in, if it comes from mm -hmm. top down, it's not going to work. It's got to come from a deep thirst on behalf of the individual, uh, the individuals so on, on, a, on behalf of the citizenry to find the fount, to find the ground of being, to find the pure water of meaning of life and how we orchestrate that in a post Christian era, in a post religious era, in a post Protestant era um, is it's just an open question. So I am a liberal in how I behave online. I am open-minded when I interact with people. I try to attenuate my language to their language. I try to be open mm -hmm. to their ideas. Um, so I can't be really fundamentalist. Now, underneath that, once you scratch beneath me being very polite and very... Um, I wouldn't say wishy-washy, but maybe people could say I'm a little wishy-washy or a little accommodating, PPC. you know, accommodating, open, uh, open mind. I do have values underneath, but they, they need to, uh, 
my my own religious religiousness, my own spirituality, if it's real, it will have to be communicated through other means than my belief, other means than my um, following John Verveke, my propositional knowledge. I'm not going to tell you what I believe and demand that mm. you believe what I believe, but I can show you through my actions, through my tone of voice, right. through my behavior, that I am oriented towards something. Hopefully you see that I'm oriented towards something. If my belief is true, then that orientation will leak through my, all my actions. Now, if now at some point people do need to believe things, at some point mythology does need to take place and mm. memes need to propagate. And I spent a lot of years and a lot of ink wrestling with mythology in a creative manner and creating stories. Um, but those, those stories, those memes, they have to... They have to speak to the truth within people and awaken people from within. Now, Christianity, I think, I think one way for Christianity to be returned to is to show people or to make a very clear argument that we are always already Christian. Even atheists, and this is uh, following Curtis Yarvin, even atheists, their entire moral framework is a Christian moral framework. It's yes. all, we're always already Christian. Now... Now, to what degree do we need to worship? To what degree do we need communion uh, or community? And to what mm. degree can we rely on a church institution to be any less or a theocracy to be any less corrupt than what we have now? Which is basically we are living in a theocracy that 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 progress fly flag. You know the, the the pride flag with the with the chevron with the trans and then the the skin color in it. They right. they uh, every year in June, last year at least, the State Department took down the American flag and put up the Progress flag. flag. That is the that is the state religion. It is a state religion. Yeah. So 100%. we can if we can understand that that is actually a perversion of Christianity. That if we orient it, we reorient it away from what it is now. This Progress Pride flag, which is just it's just horrific on an aesthetic level it's just a horrific thing when i saw it i thought it was a 4chan meme and then it became adopted <laughs> it became absolutely adopted it reminds me do you, do you remember do you ever read lord of the rings or listen to the oh, actual yeah, yeah. audio yeah, yeah. so mm -hmm. there, there's a scene between sauron and gandalf gandalf's the gray wizard and the sorry sauron's the Saruman. Saruman's the white wizard and right. and saruman is invites Gandalf up to his castle and Saruman's turned to the dark side and Saruman shows Gandalf his new robe. And he says, I'm no longer the white wizard. I'm the wizard of color. I've taken, I've taken the white and I've stripped it apart and he's wearing this rainbow mm. robe. And Gandalf says, you, you've actually destroyed what you are. You've, you've, you've atomized or you've destroyed the unity and the purity mm -hmm. and you don't have this. It's not anywhere near what you think it is you broke everything you can't get to to purity through through breaking things apart and that progress fl pride flag is a representation of unity going into diversity into diversity uh, in in the wrong improper inharmonious way so if you can try to convince people who are already religious already woke or even atheist but still have the same values, don't need to wear it on, don't need to use belief to interact with morality with each other in the world, but see that we are already living in a Christian soup. And we, if we, through that way, there might be some sort of orientation that doesn't turn fundamentalist in, in a very specific way where people 
where people are, sh- are, are pure, uh, demanding you state certain words, Jesus is king, or reducing spirituality back to that propositional statement and purity checks. I don't know how we avoid that because certain people are just dumb and they will do that mm-hmm. no matter what. You're going to have that on the right and the left. You're always going to have that. Um, so that elite class needs to reorient itself. And then us dissident elites, which I think is what we are, um, I think that the path forward is a religious future. It's a mythological future. It's a, it's a future filled with enchantment. Um, I don't see how we get there, but I think that it's possible with what we have now. That is a great breakdown of that. And I really appreciate that reference to the Lord of the Rings because I'd forgotten about that scene. And now that's something that I kind of want to look up as well. Um, Excuse me, I feel like I'm going to sneeze. Hope I don't. Um, I think that hopefully, (laughs) hopefully, I hope that what we get out of, uh, let's start. I want to preface this by saying I completely agree with you that any change has to come from the bottom up. And I believe this about pretty much everything. As I said, I'm super, super pro-life, but I am fully ready to admit that that has to come from a cultural change, which means that we need to change how we think about things like sex and parenthood and raising our own kids and explaining to them what they need to do and not do and explaining to them further the value of building a family and being a parent themselves. It's going to take a long time to be fair. And, and I think that people really want a silver bullet and they really want to say, okay, well, how are we going to tackle this right here, right now? I understand. I would love to give everybody this kind of quick solution, but there is no good quick solution to anything of this magnitude. I think that, one of the things that separates actual Christianity, actual faith from this crazy, twisted, subjective reality we're being tossed around in right now that you can feel if you ever go into an actual church. Because when you go into an actual church, what you'll find is objective truth. Truths that are thousands of years old Hmm. that people of good faith have used to orient themselves and that have gone out of their way to live and to ultimately die for in many cases. And I think that that's really where it's this change is going to come from, because when people start to notice that the subjective lies were being told by the new state religion that you're correct in calling such, um, what we're going to start to notice is that when we get into the presence of actual objective truth, there's such a great sense of relief that I don't have to be kind of making this up as I go along. There is an overarching truth that I can see and hear, and there is this weight of antiquity or of, you know, pre pre forefathers, that kind of thing. people who came before us who were willing to sacrifice their lives for it, that tells me there's something to it. Whether or not I ultimately discover that truth for myself or not, I know that there are millions, billions of people who believe this and believed it enough to die for it. Um, And that alone should, I think, persuade people. And and this won't persuade people because like you were saying, there are some people out there who are just, they're tribal, for lack of a better word. And if you give them um, platitudes to say, they will do nothing but say those words and it will never sink in. It will make no difference to them. And they'll just be kind of doing a version of the left, but from the right. And that's not really what we want either. What we want And something that we can't achieve for other people that has to be achieved from the ground up, like you were saying, is for people to recognize we're seeking objective truth. We don't have to agree with or fully understand all of it. And this is something my husband and I were discussing the other day because he's not, he doesn't consider himself religious, but he understands the importance of 
the Judeo-Christian principles that lead us to have the fantastic civilization that we have today. Um, And he says, you know, it's okay to not know everything about how this all works. This is, in fact, the definition of faith, right? And I was like, you are correct. I think you're coming at this from a totally different angle than I was because I was raised with all of this as a given, as I think you probably were to a similar degree. But we can't assume that other people are going to know that as a given. People have to reach this on their own terms. Um, and I, I think that the objective truth is really going to be what shows people the difference between true faith and the faith that's being both foisted down upon us by the left and that was foisted down upon us by fundamentalists in the past. Hmm. I hope. I hope that the objective truth is what kind of enlightens people to that. What do you, you mean think? by objective truth? So I think that with the shifting sands that we see, the concepts that you can be whatever you want to be, that nature is as you wish it to be, the whole trans men are women thing or whatever. I don't I don't even remember. I get it backwards so easily because to me it's so contrary to what I can objectively observe, things that I've learned when I took anatomy and physiology, stuff like that. Um, when I look at stuff like, you know, the different um, – the sex chromosomes i'm just like i don't really see any way out of this when i was in anatomy and physiology my teacher who never told us one way or another if he was a christian or not this was in colorado springs which is a super conservative city but he was very professional he just basically said you know when you want to kickstart a human life what you have to do is unite a sperm and an egg and that's when it happens and i was like okay that makes sense to me because it doesn't really uh, i don't really know of a different place where it could start so when i look at truths like that i'm like that is such a reprieve from this shifting sand of i can be whatever i want to be and i can say whatever i want to say and my feelings are the only thing that matters and my identity. I could be a falcon. I could be a bird. I could be a unicorn. That stuff is, it's, it's, it's abundantly actually factually untrue as far as I personally am concerned. Well, yeah, but, but and, in the context of church though, mm, yeah. I mean, how does, how does church, which is a symbolic order orient you toward objective truth? I think that if you give people the solid ground of saying, God says this, okay? God says that this is true. God says you should do this. God says you shouldn't do this. And then you can listen to what the Bible has to say about human nature versus like hope deferred makes the heart sick. You can say, I've seen that in my own life. You can look at the way that the Israelites were constantly demanding a king from God and wanting, you know, all these visible signs and wonders. You can look at the way the Pharisees treated Jesus and you're like, the things that the Bible has to say about the way humans work is abundantly, apparently, obviously true. Like you can see it today. You can see people still you know, being romantic in the way that Song of Solomon encourages people to be, albeit imperfectly. And you can see people despairing like King Solomon did in Ecclesiastes. And it's just pretty clear that the Bible has a pretty good read on the actual fundamentals of human nature in a way that people who will tell you that you can be a male and a female or neither or both at the same time, and you can switch back and forth between all these different identities they don't seem to have a grasp of human nature. People don't thrive in that kind of subjectivism, in my opinion. Well, so no, I, I, I think that I think I see what you're saying because it's not just about um, 
it's not just about changing sex or changing your gender. It's about the primacy of the human will over nature. It's that will to power. And that is what yes. one could argue quite extensively the Bible is warning or teaching about or saying that this is a human constant. This is a human constant and it's death. What, is, what does mm. it mean that this is death? What, is, what does transhuman mean? What, what is the will? What is adulating and putting your will above all else? What, what does that mean that that would be death? I mean, other than the abortion statistics right, and right. <laughs> then the, all the consequences of, of um, let's just say, uh, child transition. Uh, this is all deconstructive. Yeah. It's all deconstructive. The will can only deconstruct. What is the, what is the creative will? What is cr we, we, we see, uh, we can probably see that that which causes us to flourish is probably more in line with life than that which just expends what we ga gathered by, by flourishing right. or just expends our energy. And I think that the Bible religious traditions are probably pointing towards that truth. So when, because I just hear people say, I'm going to go into church and God's going to forgive me for this thing called sin that's has no relationship to objective truth. And mm -hmm. the way that you're countering that is saying that the truth of human nature is such that this is what the Bible is talking about. It's not talking about objective reality as in atoms and material reality. It's talking right. about that's true. Yeah. human reality, which is kind of an amalgamation of it is very subjective but it's cyclical and it happens over and over again so i think that it would be safe to say that this is an objective truth of what it is to be human yeah and i think that's a fair distinction to make because as i said when i was talking earlier with Oren, the science science and religion are not attempting to explain the same things at all pretty much except for you know the idea of when life might have begun or who might have kickstarted that science and religion are attempting to explain completely different planes of human experience so yes the bible is not attempting to objectively explain you know you know light or matter and stuff like that but from my exposure to it and from my understanding of human nature through my own somewhat cynical observation of human beings as a whole I can say that there is a great deal of wisdom in there that people are too quick to discard. Now, as I was saying earlier, when you come in out of the subjectivism of you can do whatever you want to do, there are no limits. And as Oren was saying earlier today, you put these limits around yourself and you are asked to make sacrifices of yourself. That's completely different and even more subjective. But when you put these limits on yourself, you are freed to be like, okay, I am no longer in control of everything in my world. Everything is not putty in my hands. And that's a good thing. It's okay. It's better for it to be that way. It's better to surrender some of this will to power to an actual higher power to someone who, for all intents and purposes, we can kind of assume has our best interests in heart because at heart, because if we believe that God created the world, he's given us this amazing and beautiful place where we can survive and thrive. He's created. He's not destroying like the subjectivism that we see in the world around us. Yeah. So I, my whole point is that there's too much subjectivity out in the regular world. And then the church kind of gives people this foundation upon which to actually try to build instead of destroying.
Well, and there's there's more room inside of religion than one would give it credit for. If somebody's uh, been abused by religion or seen religion as a stifling place or, mm. or some sort of controlling environment, and that is not without precedent or empirical uh, evidence to support such a supposition, right. um, there still is... So I've, I've been, I've been I, I was reading this uh, substack about Jacques Ellul, who's a French thinker who has some pretty deep critiques of Western uh, civilization post-Christianity. And he has this theory that technology has kind of taken over everything and that we can't, we can never really reform the systems that we're dealing with because it's a the technology was preceded by a a mentality of technology or, or what can be translated to technique where everything can be solved to be more efficient, where the process can work through all of our problems. And so we have all these institutions that are run on these assumptions that intentional, rational uh, action policy can solve everything. And the only way that we can solve the problems that all this policy created is more policy, mm. which cre creates even more problems. And, and, uh, and it's a pretty steep critique. I'm still wrestling with it, but I was just thinking about, yeah, we can reduce all of our problems to any given dimension. We can say, well, liberalism has these problems with reformation or Protestantism or, or technology or materialism or, or science. Um, or even religion, um, you could reduce it to all these different um, critiques and see different problems with it. But ultimately, I think that the ability to be greater than... Ultimately, w what we're looking for is something that can in include all these different systems that are problematic, um, all these different ideologies that are problematic, that can 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 include them in such a way that they become harmonized and oriented towards some sort of higher goal and a religious framework if interpreted correctly and this is the problem with the gender argument people people misinterpret these words that we're using they misinterpret what a stereotype is they think of a stereotype just in the gender for example in the gender uh, debate or problem like stereotype is in, in essentially bad it's not essentially bad it's a pattern recognition software that we yeah. run and and it it if you teach and yes it can be controlling and it can be limiting but at the same time we do need to know our limits we do need to know our natures and so stereotypes kind of lay out generally the direction that men and women go and you could probably go along like different ethnicities kind of have different kind of stereotypical behaviors that are funny and and um but they're not exact they fall away after looking at it and so right. with regard to a religious framework what's in what's what needs to precede the religious framework is an understanding of what that religious framework is doing what is it talking about how is it talking about life and and i think peterson jordan peterson has done a very very good job a very necessary job of kind of cracking that open and making it a little bit more popular there's these things called symbol uh, symbolic truths there's we can be in dialogue with these ancient stories. The truth that is inherent in them is, is a very valid, necessary truth that is of a different kind and qualia than scientific truth, yes. than factual truth, than bureaucratic truth. Right. But so, so understand when entering into a religious framework, it's really important 
um, to, to be on the to be on any sort of similar page to understand what we're doing when we're talking about that framework. But I do think that a religious framework properly construed and constructed and promulgated or shared has the capacity to organize all of the different systems. It can actually organize communism and, and capitalism properly construed. We are communal beings properly yes, construed. Correct. Capitalism is very good to engage our, our desire to work, our ingenuity, and to trade and to, to, to what, do market signals, uh, to, to create information and distribute Im- information. And you find in the Bible, and this is the interesting thing that the left says all the time, is that Jesus was a communist. Now, he's not a Maoist, he's not a Stalinist, but yeah, there is this sense of brotherhood, the sense of communal, familial um, uh, ties that mm-hmm. bind us if those now if those if that kind of communism it it does operate within the family capitalism does operate right. in the family where you right. where you give the kid incentive you give the kid um earning potential and show that the kid if the kid has value in the system then he gets rewarded by the system and then there is a communal this is ours right now right. how that scales how that scales up to a society is impossible without some sort of similar orientation to a father God and to some sort of, I, I, I don't know how to place because I'm, I am a monotheist and I am a patriarchal guy. There is a divine feminine, but I don't know how to articulate that at this point, but there is some sort of unifying horizontal feminine that can embrace the world and some sort of transcendent masculine that can tie all the worlds together. And I don't think you get communism on a massive scale without, a, a very, very powerful, divine, um, virtuous populace, right? That does yes. care about each other. Right. Right. And so you do need a religious framework. And, and you see it in communism. Communism just assumes this religious framework absent God. And then mm. what, they, what ends up in the place of God is human will and bureaucracy, which then becomes pure death. Right. Well, it, it because it lacks kind of this understanding of human actuality, like the truth of human nature, they tend yeah. to assume a lot of intentions and a lot of, you know, decisions that people would not make naturally, which ultimately leads to people being put into situations where they cannot thrive. And by thrive, I mean eat, which means that they end up not being able to survive. And I think I've, I've long said that communism would work if we had a different kind of human. Um, and I think that's very <laughs> that's much, <true. laughs> it, it's very much in line with what you're saying. It would work with people who are like fully in tune with, you know, the higher powers with God. And you can look at communities that are very, very communally structured, like Amish and Mormon and some of these other super religious, but smaller communities that don't require. I don't know, Amish are like, uh, they're, they're propagating like flies they're, they're they gonna are, take yeah. over america pretty soon <laughs> if you look at the logarithmic logarithmic yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i think you're right well i think you're right but they are they have found this this great system of being a supportive community and doing things like coming together to build barns if someone needs one yeah. and also preventing outside influences from having overt necess- uh, yeah, overt negative influences Influence, on yeah. the culture um, which yeah you do get that homogeny which and I don't see how we resist well I understand the left's dire hate uh, fear of fascism I have that too I I want color I want 
difference and distinction, but there's a trade-off. You know, I want a certain amount of variation. And I think that there's a reason why Christianity uh, mutated to have so many different denominations. And and after a bit of killing itself over those denominations, it kind of chilled out. But there's still a lot of rich diversity in, in Christianity, broadly construed, which I would even argue, not here and now, but I think that atheism is even a part of Christianity, I think. It, Certainly it's just kind of in the West. Cleaned yes. up in a way. Yeah, yeah. Certainly in the West. And that's always been kind of my argument with atheism. You can't really come at Christianity from a position of true scrutiny when you are yourself operating from the water in which you're both swimming. Yeah. Right? Because your your whole life, your entire culture, your family, and all of your belief structures are built on something you deny that is the judeo-christian principles that came alongside of the reformation that came over to the u.s don't forget the talmud no yeah that's true too that's true too and it is interesting to watch them try to argue against the very platform they're standing on because it's just not going to work and i understand having doubts about god and taking issue with some of the things that christianity in the past has argued for and that's fine but you need to understand that you're arguing from the plank that they built, you know. Well, and, and at the same time, it behooves Christians to be very humble in the face of God. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and to not assume that you know God's will or you're the harping of God's will. And it's really difficult. I understand. I, I did an episode very similar to this one um, that were the, kind of the same topic that we were doing now. And I discussed that I was doing Ramadan, the fast of Ramadan. And some guy came into my comments and, and got really mad at me for talking about Ramadan on Good Friday um, because I was, I was slandering Christians or something. I'm like, I'm fasting, you're fasting. Well, how does my, like, how does, and, th- and then there was this whole thing, are you Christian or not? And one woman showed up like, I'm crying. You're not a Christian. I'm like, what? dude, chill, <laughs> chill, 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 no chill, need to chill, cry. chill. So I, I think that Christians do, 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 Christians are humans too. Yeah. Yeah. They, they assume that they know. And, and, and one of my projects that is very in the background of what I'm trying to do is trying to trying to approach the process of believing in a more mature way where my belief isn't something where I need to impose on other people. My belief is actually, my belief is a, a mental and intentional uh, set of programs or, you know, or practices that help me orient myself towards reality. My belief is not reality. It helps me to orient myself to reality. So going back to objective truth, I would argue that, that, that a, a good church is a place that orients you to reality so that after you do the practice or, or, um, you know, do some worship or seek forgiveness and go through the, 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 the worship and the ritual, um, that you are cleaner on the other end, you feel broader, you feel lighter. Right. And then you get to engage with the world more cleanly. That, that's what's showing you that your faith is actually bearing fruits. The belief itself is secondary to where it sends you. And if, you're, if it's sending you to a good place, then I think that's the proof of the faith, the proof of the believing aspect of, of religion. That's interesting. And it's great that you mentioned that because I was just listening to um, Dennis Prager talk to Jordan Peterson about this. And he was saying that in Jewish understanding, what they do first is establish the belief. And from that, you operate your actions. Whereas he says that Christianity is more waiting for getting an impression that something happened and then you act according to that. 
I see the benefit from both. Honestly, I would be very interested in doing like an actual Bible study and seeing what the Bible has to say about whether you should wait for the feeling to strike you. But on the on the topic of feelings, I will say that as somebody who's recently started going back to church, there is an actual an actual feeling, like a, a lightning of of stepping away from all this ridiculous wokeness that's really infiltrated everything and getting back to timeless truths that people have believed for thousands of years. And I wish that more people, I wish that for more people because there is something so freeing. And I think that people, most people still uh, being stuck in the nineties and some of this fundamentalist thinking believe that religion is, excuse me, all about tying you down and restricting you from doing all this fun stuff. Well, now we've been like the kid who got into the candy jar and is now mm. sick. You know, we've done yeah. all the fun stuff. We've we've indulged in the hedonism and you've been incredibly selfish and there's just been no end to it. And we're tired and we're looking for some actual structure, some actual restraint. So as we wrap up, Benjamin, what is a silver lining we can give people? How do we think we can kind of help orient culture the right way? I know, just something light as we finish. Okay, you know, no big yeah. deal. It should take about five oh. seconds, right? <laughs> well, we have a few Jeez. minutes, so. <laughs> uh, huh. well, I think that... I do think that there's guidance available to people that we are... Um, I, okay, so I had a dream... Um, long time ago where um i was kind of in a very uh intense moment in my life where i was i was seeing a lot of spiritual truths and a lot of things were being revealed to me in very rapid succession um that and and it was a gift but it was also helping me to orient myself because i was kind of off i was i was heading in a bad direction and so i received a, a number of different gifts and uh one day i was i was hanging out with i was i was i had a dream it was, it was one of those dreams that became very, very real. And this young man approached me and he said, I want to show you something. And I'm like, okay. And so he took me outside of the world and we went up into space and we we're looking down at the planet. And, and then I asked, what if God stopped loving the world? I just asked that and the world just vanished. And, and not just like a disappearing trick, but it ceased to exist. Hmm. And it was a terrible feeling. It was like, it was, it just didn't, it was like the absence of existence, like intruded. And, and from that, I, I took a very necessary lesson in my own life that everything is supported. Everything is supported by love. God, God is love. God is continually radiating love and that is the basis of existence there's there's a floor of being in there and i think that that translates into the the more complex forms i i do think that culture i do think that people who are earnestly seeking the good the good will be revealed to them because the good is reality that is the reality mm. that the evil is an obscuration or a or a uh, some sort of wrongful relationship to reality it's nothing in evil isn't anything in and of itself so that's the something positive that that is a pure statement of faith and belief on my part i appreciate that fully and i actually think that your dream was very revelatory because that actually ties into my understanding of 
hell, which is an interesting topic that we're really not going to get into right here now at the <laughs> end of this. Hell? No, no, no. And I'll tell you why. My, my family <laughs> always taught us that hell was simply separation from God. And it strikes me that this feeling that you got when you asked the question, what if God stopped loving the world and it simply ceased to exist like it had never been, is probably a feeling similar to what the Christian understanding of hell is. And it's not eternal physical torture. It's not like anger or this feeling of, you know, frustration or whatever. It's an actual feeling of absence like there's just nothing yeah. there anymore which should be terrifying to people and when you mentioned that god is love oh hold on give me one second when you mentioned no, that god is love i want to i want to um firm that up a little bit for people because i think that people get on board with like the john lennon version of man happy hippy dippy love free love all this good stuff i don't think that's what it is love in the catholic tradition is to will the good of the other and i think that you can firmly fully and fairly say that if you believe in a loving kind generous god who created us and who necessarily wants the best for us his purest version of love would be to will our good, even if it's not what we want. And that's not going to make us happy all the time, but we can rest assured that it's going to turn us into people who are closer to being hmm. what God designed us to be because we were created yeah. in his image. Yeah. Yeah. So you're Catholic now? No, no. I'm just drawing on that from the Catholic inspiration because I think that's okay. such a good summary of what love is. No, we're going to a Presbyterian church right now, which is what I was raised in. Um, and okay. so far, so good. We're liking that, appreciating that kind of steadiness that you can't really get from the world anymore. Benjamin, it's been so great to talk to you. It's great, been great to have you as a guest instead of as a yes. host. A lot of fun to kind of flip the tables in that regard. I hear you have some really fun interviews coming up in the near future. Looking yes. forward to that for sure. Always love yes. conversations. They are, in fact, very calming, as the name suggests. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time today on such a, a short notice. Where can people find you? Once tons again? of fun. Uh, Twitter, Benjamin A. Boyce. YouTube, Benjamin A. Boyce. Um, and any sort of podcast, it's Calm Versations. Calm, C-A-L-M-Versations, V-E-R-Sations. S-A-T-I-O-N-S. That was hard for me Something to do. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I Wonderful. No, but the link, I'm it. sure, the, will be in the description. That's right. As I tell yep. my guests. Maybe Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much, Benjamin, for joining us. And thank you to my audience for joining us, too. It's been a great conversation. Hopefully, you all got as much out of it as I did. Until next time. <laughs>